0: There we go. I'm wondering how many are planning on making a New Year's resolution or two? Anybody? <laughs> Is that kind of passe? Huh? We're so cynical that we don't even make resolutions anymore, huh? Well, we're talking about decisions of faith and I thought very appropriately we could begin to talk a little bit more about these decisions that we are making and what some of these decisions of faith are in light of the fact that we are going to be facing a new year and uh, what issues, indeed, uh, what decisions will we be making in this new year. And no doubt we'll be confronted with, um, obviously, the choice between making worldly and uh godless decisions, or making godly faith decisions. So we want to talk about these faith decisions. We picked this up from two weeks ago. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. I want to do a little bit of review with you, but let's read the passage first. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than uh, to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered, because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea, as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. I suggested to you uh, a few weeks ago as we started this uh, little series on decisions of faith that life is made up of decisions, isn't it? Decisions, decisions, decisions. You can't hardly live without making decisions. It's made up of all manner, all kind of decisions, and the course and quality of our lives really are determined more by our decisions than our circumstances. There's a tendency to blame circumstances rather than making sound choices and sound decisions. People look at their life and they say, well, I had this circumstance and this circumstance, this circumstance, that's why I'm in such a bad shape. Rather than say, well, I made this decision, this decision, this decision, that's why I'm in such a bad shape. So the course of our life and the quality of our life really is determined more then by the decisions we're going to make uh, than really by the circumstances of our life, necessarily. Right decisions are made on the basis of right faith. If you're going to make right decisions, you have to have right faith. You cannot make right decisions unless there's a right faith, unless you're rightly oriented uh, towards God. And Christian living involves making right decisions, doesn't it? Very simply, if you're going to live your life as a Christian, you're going to be fruitful. It requires making, obviously, right decisions. You can tell a mature Christian very simply by the decisions that that person makes. You look at a person's life, you can determine their maturity. Uh, Not so much by what comes out of their mouth, not so much by what they appear to be. But as you examine the choices, you examine the decisions they make, you you can see maturity or lack thereof in their life. No person in all of Scripture, of course, other than Jesus illustrates the power of right decisions better than Moses. Moses is our example of making decisions of faith. We're going to look at three of those decisions tonight. Moses' decisions were right very simply because his faith was right. You can't make right decisions without right faith. You'll be all over the map. You'll be wondering what's right, what's wrong, which way should I go. But if you have right faith, if you're rightly oriented to God then you can, in fact, make right decisions, right choices. Your life will fall in line. Your life will begin to make some sense. We're going to look at three decisions tonight. There's seven we're going to look at overall uh, in these passages. Three things that faith accepts, and four things that it rejects. We reviewed one uh, two weeks ago. Verse 23, faith accepts God's plans. Faith accepts God's plan. This is momentous. We saw three statements within verse 23, and this is really referring back to the faith of Moses' parents, and he inherited a wonderful heritage from his parents, a heritage of faith. We're told that Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Remember, the the Pharaoh commanded that all of the male children be thrown into the Nile River, be uh, drown, be slain, but they didn't do that because they saw that he was no ordinary child. Indeed, uh, Stephen's testimony in the book of Acts in chapter seven speaks of him as being fair in the sight of the Lord or lovely in the sight of the Lord. Stephen comments on that episode, and his insight, given by the Holy Spirit, says that that uh, Moses was not just special to his parents; he was special to God. His parents had some insight, they had some knowledge that God had some special plan for him. And hence, they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were committed to saving Moses' life, whatever the cost to them personally. They were people who accepted God's plans. They didn't know exactly what his plans were. They didn't know all the details of God's plans for their son. But they accepted God's plan. They said, Lord, we're going to go your way. Your will be done Not necessarily our will. It would have been easier for them, if you will, in the short run, to have sacrificed uh, Moses, maybe, and obeyed the king's edict. No risk to their life then. But they were willing to risk their own life to save him. They accepted God's plans. You look at your life, you say, what are God's plans for my life? Do you believe that God has plans for your life? Yeah, are you willing to accept God's plans? At what point do you protest God's plans? You know, all, over and over and over, daily, we pray, Lord, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done. It's, the more you're given to that, uh, that conviction of his will being done, the more you'll see his will being done. Lord reads our hearts, doesn't he? He reads our hearts. He knows when we're just flapping our jaws or when those, when those flapping jaws represent a genuine heart attitude. And our prayer is, Lord, Lord, not only your will be done, but don't let me miss your will. I want the very best. Is God's will not the best? Right? Good, pleasing, and perfect, the Apostle Paul says. And there's always a wrestling. There's always a tugging in there with our flesh and the world and the influences of the world and, and what we want, humanly speaking, and what God wants. There's one side of us, the spiritual side, that says, I want what God wants. But there's a, another side of my flesh that says, this is what I want. In most cases, we know that what God wants is going to require some stretching, some growth, some, maybe some sufferings on our part. Isn't that true? And we tend to want to shy away from that. I want to, Lord, just make my Christian life nice and easy. No problems. But the minute you you say, Lord, your will be done, and you give yourself to that, you just know God's going to make you a missionary, right? (laughs) These are the missionary types. God's already spoken to them. But you know they're still here, though. (laughs) Their time hasn't come yet to leave. So faith accepts, this is, this is probably uh, one of the most significant decisions that you'll make in faith in your entire life. God's plan. I want God's plan. I want God's will for my life. No matter the cost. And again, there, there will be some wrestling in, 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 inside of you going on over uh, those plans And as those plans begin to unfold, uh, sometimes they're not what you want. Sometimes they take a road or a path or a turn that you thought, my, I would have never, ever guessed this. And it's not the most pleasant thing sometimes. But God is wonderful, and he works all these things for our good. We can trust him. God, your plans, your will be done. There's nothing so freeing as to submit yourself to him. There's nothing so freeing as to abandon yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, okay, I'm, I'm here. Your, your will be done. I surrender. I'm, I'm going to quit kicking against the goads. I'm going to quit fighting. I'm going to quit uh, kvetching, okay? Now let's look at the second decision faith makes. The second decision faith makes is, this is in verse 24. So again, read with me verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So on the basis of that verse, I want to suggest to you that the second decision that faith makes is that faith rejects the world's prestige. Faith rejects the world's prestige. Now for 40 years, Moses had been a prince in Egypt, hadn't he? 40 years he'd grown up in Egypt, grown up in the palace. As ostensibly the daughter of, or the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Egypt was the wealthiest, the most powerful, and the most advanced society of that day in the ancient Near East. So Moses has grown up in a very, very significant, substantial way. Stephen, again, in his sermon in Acts chapter seven, verse twenty-two, Stephen comments on Moses. He says Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt and was powerful in speech and action. So Moses was, was, had all the benefits that Egypt could offer to him in terms of language, skills, training, education. Moses had it all. Though highly educated and highly skilled, however, I would submit to you he never lost his knowledge of the hope of Israel and the promises of God. As, as influenced as he was, as trained as he was in Egypt, he never lost hope of the, of the, Never lost sight of the hope and the promises of God that God had for Israel. When he turns 40, and you read this back in the Genesis account, when he turns 40, he faces a crucial decision. And the crucial decision simply is this. He has to decide between becoming a full-fledged Egyptian with absolute loyalty and no reservations to Egypt or joining his own people, Israel. That's the decision he faces as he's 40 years old. What does he do? Anybody remember? What does he do? He does the right thing. Why? Because he has right faith. That's right. Very good, Tommy. The deciding factor in that decision was his faith in God. Didn't we say that right decisions come from right faith? I mean, think about this. He has the wealth of Egypt laid before him. He has the power of Egypt. Essentially at his feet. He's a prince. Who knows that maybe he wouldn't be a Pharaoh? Who knows that, that he doesn't already isn't already aware of that? But he makes a decision, and that decision is to align himself with the people of Israel. The deciding factor in that decision, quite simply, was his faith in God. His faith in God. Somehow, Moses knew that he had been chosen for some special service. He knew something. We don't know exactly uh, all the details of it, but we knew that he he knew something and then from that day on he would be an Israelite first and only that's what he chose again stephen in acts chapter 7 verse 25 basically he tells us that moses thought that the people would recognize that he was sent to deliver them but they did not recognize that they didn't see that at all remember the egyptians were in slavery in egypt or, i mean the israelites were in slavery in Egypt weren't they they were enslaved that country that once highly honored them now had enslaved them and you would think that they would they would welcome a great deliverer but Moses of course isn't recognized as that initially it won't be for another 40 years will it he's got to go back to school get his masters and his doctorate in patience Yes, yes. Now, Moses, at this particular point in time, Moses is in a position similar to Joseph's. Remember Joseph? Joseph was what? Second in command in Egypt, wasn't he? Moses is essentially in that same position. He is the prince of Egypt. He's in essentially the same position that Joseph was. But God had a much different work for him to do than he had for Joseph to do. Joseph used Egypt's power for the good of God's chosen people, didn't he? Joseph had access to all the power. He provided a place for them to live, all the food they needed, everything. The land of Goshen was the choicest land. Joseph used Egypt's power for the good of God's chosen people. Moses, on the other hand, would have to oppose Egypt's power for the good of God's people. So both these men had essentially the same position... But their work was different. One would utilize the power of Egypt, the other would have to oppose the power of Egypt for the good of God's people. You know, in the world, fame always brings a certain amount of honor, doesn't it? Famous people are honored. They had, uh, what on TV the other night, they had the Kennedy Center Honors. Is that how it goes? Kennedy something like that. I don't remember how it goes. But they honored all these famous people. The issue isn't so much whether they deserved it or not. The issue is if you're famous, that brings honor, doesn't it? That brings honor. If you're born into the right family, if you are a a successful person, an athlete or or an entertainer, the world will think of you as great whether you are or not. Very simply. If you have a lot of money, regardless of how you got it, the world will hold you in high esteem. If you have enough degrees behind your name, people will think of you in the sense that you have arrived. You have it together. You have all these degrees, all this education. The same is true in regard to political power. Many other types of human success. The world honors and esteems highly uh, people who are famous for one reason or another. Moses had all of these things. He had education. He had wealth. He had family. uh, He had it all. And yet, he gave them up. Can you imagine that? He gave them up. From the worldly standpoint, he was sacrificing everything for nothing. Can you see that? Just from a worldly point of view, he was, he'd give all this up. He's sacrificing everything he has for essentially, from a world's point of view, nothing. What are you giving this stuff up for? What are you giving up the throne? Why are you giving up all this money? Why are you giving up your fame and, and the power of Egypt? And what are you giving it up for? Nothing. But from a spiritual point of view... He was sacrificing, in essence, nothing for everything, wasn't he? Isn't everything going to burn in this life? Sure it is. Sure it is. Moses renounced the world's power. He renounced the world's honor. He renounced the world's prestige for the sake of God. That was his choice. And he knew that in doing this, he would gain immeasurably more then he would lose. In fact, in verse 26, he says, he was looking ahead to his reward. He knew his reward was yet future. His reward wasn't going to be in this life necessarily, and it wasn't a material reward. The things the world considers great, they have absolutely nothing to do with what God considers to be great. And we can get so caught up in the things of this life and the things of this world in terms of prestige, fame, honor, etc. The temptation is constantly there to draw us away. It's well to remember Moses' example that he gave all those things up. God honors people on a totally different basis than the world. He's not interested so much in what family we come from or how much money we have or how much education or what positions we've held these are not related to his primary concerns for us that's not where god is with us is a whole different agenda look at first john chapter 2 it should be up on the screen first john chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 john says do not love the world or anything in the world If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of a sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting, what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. See, Moses understood that. Moses understood that. We're told in our passage in Hebrews here, that he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected that prestige, that position, the honor that would accrue to him in favor of that which God had for him. Beloved, as long as we can break with God in order to protect our worldly interests, we are not living by faith. What worldly interest in your life would you seek to protect that you find compromised, or that you would break with God to protect this worldly interest. If that's the case, we're not living by faith. We're not living by faith. I wonder if the strength of faith is proved by self-denial. Think about that for a minute. The strength of faith is proved by self-denial. Would Moses be an example of this? The decisions he makes, the decisions of faith he makes, as we see in these passages, really do come from his faith in God. And in order to have faith in God, you have to be willing to deny yourself, don't you? Jesus said, if you're being my disciple, you must what? (laughs) Deny yourself. The strength of our faith comes from our willingness to deny ourselves. Moses cared nothing for his Egyptian heritage or advantages. They were both pagan, they were worldly. He had given himself to much greater things. Love of the world has little to offer, little to offer compared with the riches and the satisfaction of knowing Christ. You know that Moses saw Christ? Moses looked ahead with eyes of faith and he saw him who is invisible. Think about this. Moses is a Christian. From that perspective, Moses was a Christian. He looked ahead. He forsook the world. The very same thing that God calls you and I to do, that Jesus calls you and I to do, to turn our backs on the world and turn towards Him. That's exactly what Moses did. Exactly. Moses gladly joined with God's people, though they were slaves rather than take advantage of the prestige and the privileges of Egypt and be unfaithful to God. What, what choice? I mean, as we look to this new year and you think about you know, beginnings, we, we, we mark our, our days, we mark our years with, uh, with dates, with times, birthdays, seasons and such. And, and, and the new year is one of those seasons. And a lot of people are, are saying, all right, right after New Year's, I'm going on a diet. <laughs> or right after New Year's, I'm going to do this and such. Or I'm going to, I'm going to make a change. I'm going, to, I'm, going to do, I'm going to live differently in this area or that area. What decisions, what decisions of faith will you make? And especially with respect to the world. What decisions of faith will you make this new year? That leads us to the third decision of faith. This is verse 25. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. What did he choose? He chose to be mistreated, right? Along with the people of God rather than what? Enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So the third decision of faith is this. Faith rejects the world's pleasure. Faith rejects the world's pleasure. What do I mean by that? Well, who needs to be convinced that sin is often fun? Anybody? No one. I mean, sin is fun, isn't it? I mean, it's a tremendous attraction. It feeds our pride, it satisfies our physical desires and appetites, and offers many, many pleasures, doesn't it? Sin. Very attractive, would you agree? So none none of us have to be convinced that sin is fun. But, sin has two other characteristics that the world doesn't notice necessarily, and the first one is this. Sin is always evil. It is always evil. And secondly, it doesn't last very long. It's always passing. It's fleeting. No matter how temporarily satisfying it may be, its satisfaction is destined to fade. Sin. It has no good in it. It can bring no good to us. Any seeming good is both deceptive and fleeting. That's the truth about sin. It's deceptive, and it's fleeting. Now sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes you can't help but wonder why unbelievers, worldly people, even the grossly immoral, seem to do so well. You ever wonder about that? The Bible is full of those comments, full of those questions. You may want to to ask God some of those questions. I mean, it seems sometimes that they are, in every visible way, healthier, wealthier, happier, more successful, more famous than Christians. We look around at Christians and... It seems that many of God's people are not healthy. They're not wealthy. uh, They're not famous. They're not successful. They're even ridiculed. You think, why this disparity? You think, we're God's people. We should be abundantly blessed. Right? Well, Job asked that question. Job chapter 21. Let me read to you. Job chapter 21, verses 7 through 15. Listen to to Job's words. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. Their bulls never fail to breed. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock. Their little ones dance about. This is the ungodly. They sing to the music of the tambourine, the harp. They make merry to the sound of the flute. They spend their years in prosperity. They go down to the grave in peace. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? What will we gain by praying to Him? Boy, Isn't that something? It seems that that more times than not, the, the wicked really do flourish. And here you are, you're a believer, you're watching this, you think, why am I suffering? Why am I doing without? What good is this doing me, serving God, trying to be faithful? And I'm not flourishing. It makes the world and the world's pleasures all that more tempting, doesn't it? We look at them and say, man, I wish I had that brand new Porsche. Or that nice new house, or that, or this, or the other. Or... But but we seem to just be struggling, just getting along. Jeremiah. Same thing, Jeremiah 12.1. Same plea. He speaks to God and he says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, I would speak with you about your justice. In other words, Jeremiah saying something's wrong here. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Now, remember, Jeremiah is not living in ease, right? He's suffering. Suffering a tremendous rejection. Listen to the psalmist. He had the same question. Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. He said, this is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Does it feel like that sometimes? When you look around and you see people prospering, enjoying the pleasures of this world. Well, Job Job had an answer for that. Back in verse 13 when he said, They go down to the grave in peace. The wicked go down to the grave in peace. What does that mean? It means they're oblivious. They don't have a clue what's going on. Now there's an alternate translation that says they go down to the grave in an instant before they know it. It's all taken away. Zopar. You remember who Zopar was? Who knows who Zopar was? Glenn, who is was Zopar? One of, Job's three. One of Job's three counselors. That's right. That's right. Zopar put it this way. He says, The mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. Kind of puts it all in context, doesn't it? You see, they die, and it's all over. Except for the judgment, of course. They enjoy and they get by with sin for a while, but only for a while. If we take James seriously, we won't envy the wicked of whom he writes. And let me read you from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He says, now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not in in opposing you. There's there's not a lot there in terms of, of admiring and envying those who are indulging in the wealth of this world, is there? David learned it, didn't he? David learned the hard way that sinful pleasure is both brief, and disastrous for the pleasure of having Bathsheba for himself. For the pleasure of having Bathsheba, a moment, if you will, of pleasure. He committed adultery, but that wasn't enough. Then he had Uriah, her husband, killed. For one moment of pleasure, he let down once. Later in his life, he would cry out in Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Oh my, his sin just haunted him, and haunted him, and haunted him. But it wasn't just the sin that haunted him. It was the consequences to that sin. Remember, he watched his infant son, the product of, of that relationship that he had with Bathsheba, he watched his infant son die. But if that weren't bad enough, his life went downhill from there on. If you read David's life, just prior to that incident with Bathsheba, his life's at the pinnacle. He has just united the whole of Israel, extended their borders to the furthest that they would ever have been in the history of Israel. A mighty king, united the people. And then Bathsheba hits. And if you read David's life from then on, his life just goes downhill from there. And even his son Absalom rebelled against him. Because of his own sin, and because of his own lack of discipline in his life, he couldn't even discipline his own kids. And the result was Absalom would... Uh, rebel and he'd have all manner of breakdown in his family and Absalom himself, whom he loved, would be killed. David's sin was short-lived in pleasure, but it was long lived in consequence. Moses understood that. He understood that. He knew that God was calling him to give his life for his people choice. Obey or disobey. He had a choice, didn't he? Obey or disobey. Now, disobeying had many attractions for him. Among them, certainly, it would have been a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable in the short run to disobey. Isn't it? Isn't a lot more enjoyable and a lot easier to disobey in the short run? But you always got to count the cost, don't you? There's an old saying, short-term gain oftentimes means long-term pain. For Moses, just think about this. It's hard enough. It's hard enough to stop seeking worldly things, but it's even harder to give them up after you have them. I mean, Moses had it all, didn't he? But to give all that stuff up once you've got it, it's hard enough just not to seek them. And when you don't have anything, and the world is real appealing, uh, appealing to you, it's hard enough not to go after that. But what if, you, what if you've already got it to give it up? Wouldn't you say that would be harder? I think so. And Moses had a great many of these things by the time he was 40. He had the best. He had the best, the best food, the best clothes, the best chariot, the best horses, the best condo, right? The best toys, best recreation. I mean, on and on and on. He enjoyed the pleasures of an extremely comfortable life. Would you assume that to be true? Sure. Now, having these things, enjoying these things, and these things in themselves are not sinful in and of themselves. Do you think that Joseph had all these things? Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Joseph enjoyed all the same pleasures and all the same benefits in the same place, Egypt. And all the while, Joseph was perfectly obedient to God, wasn't he? But you see, they would have been sins for Moses. There's a difference here. They would have been sins for Moses had he decided to stay in the Egyptian court. But he gave them up for the sake of God's call, didn't he? God spoke, God called him, God moved in his life. And he gave those things up. He made a conscious choice. We're told to be mistreated among, along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. It's not worth it. It's just flat not worth it. This was an act of faith. He believed that he, did, if he did what God wanted, he would be immeasurably better off in the long run. immeasurably better off in the end. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do right now, because I know that that's going to produce fruit in my life, good fruit. I know my life's going to be blessed. What choices am I making? What choices will I make in the future? Beloved, God has called us to holiness, has He not? He's called us to holiness. He's called us to come apart from sin. Obedience is not always easy, is it? Obedience is not always easy. But in the end, sin is much, much harder than obedience. Sin extracts a much greater cost and a much greater toll on our life than does obedience. Oh, it's so hard to obey. I know it's hard to obey. And it's so easy to give in. Yes, it's easy to give in. But sin's going to extract a much greater cost from your life. What are you going to choose? God's way is not only for His own honor and glory, but it's for our own good. He told Israel, He said, do these things and you'll be blessed. Don't do them or you're going to get cursed. Satan's way is for His honor and glory, isn't it? But it's not for our good, it's for our harm. He's called the destroyer. And he is the God of this world. The God of this world system. And he's, he's loving to pull people off and to distract them. Even Christians. You say, well, I lose my salvation if I, if I choose sin. I hope not. But if you continue to choose sin, you don't know, remember what the writer of the Hebrews said, you run the risk of apostatizing. You continue to harden your heart, harden your heart, harden your heart. There remains no longer a sacrifice for repentance. What decisions will we make in this next year? What decisions will we make? Beloved, will we make worldly and sinful decisions or will we make decisions of faith? Decisions of faith. Those decisions of faith may seem difficult. They may seem costly. They may seem hard in the short run. But in the long run, they will produce a harvest of righteousness. If we give in to the world and if we give in to sin and we make worldly and sinful choices, they may seem enjoyable for the short run. But in the long run, we're going to pay a heavy price, a heavy toll. This is what God says. What decisions will we make? If you make resolutions for New Year's, and I encourage everybody to make resolutions, step up to the plate. Make some resolutions. Stand up for Christ. Say, Lord, for your sake, this is how I'm going to live this year. You can say with Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Decisions of faith, brothers and sisters. Decisions of faith. That's the only way to go. And God will bless your life as a result. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. Thank You for the richness of Your Word Thank you, Lord, for Moses' example. Thank you for all of the heroes of chapter 11 of Hebrews. Lord, as we learn to emulate their lives, as we learn from their lives as examples, it only underscores our commitment to you and to walk by faith, to live by faith, to worship by faith, Lord, and to make decisions of faith, not based on our circumstances, but based on what's right, based on what honors you, Because Lord, in the long run, that's what's best for us too. Lord, help us as we enter this new year that we indeed may make those decisions of faith. Father, for your glory, we love you tonight. We give you thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing praises to our God before we dismiss.
1: Come to you, fall at your feet to save you sin you are Just to, to obey. obey I will obey. I will obey. Now that you set me free. Now that I'm free, Lord. I will obey. I will, I will obey. Just to obey. Okay.